Good morning, Marcel. Today's teaching text is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 5. And if you have a shed Bible, you can find that on page 12. Let's read together. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Liz. Good morning, friends. My name's Tim, if we haven't met. Still Tim, if we have. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm a millennial. I'm an older one. Still have the Dewey Decimal System up here. I've gone through a card catalog. But for all the things that that means culturally, and all the participation trophies I've got through the years, I don't think I'm a great participator in life, in things, in my spiritual walk. Let me, let me fill in the gaps a little bit more. Let me tell you what I mean here. Uh, here's a little throwback story, if you will. Fifth or sixth graders, if you're in the room, fifth graders, glad you're with us. This happened to me when I was about your age, 10, 11, 12 years old. And maybe you have a similar story to this in your past. I was invited to my first job I was helping my dad's friend who owned a Christmas tree farm and uh, I was gonna help out wherever possible and got paid a little bit. So we're having our little business meeting as you do on Saturday, a couple of weeks before Christmas. Guys are standing around, around the wood heater, flannels, Carhartts, leather gloves, men who knew what they were doing, and me. And you know, it it just so happens that, that pretty soon, they're like, well, here's what we're going to do today. Tim, could you, go, could you go warm up those chainsaws over there? And then could you bring that tractor around? And I was like, hey, I, I, me? I'm leather gloves. I was going to have hot chocolate and smile at people, right? That's, and it was kind of this, oh, my gosh, do I know how to do that? He actually gave me an assignment. Like, what in the world am I doing? Do you have the right guy? Now, thankfully, I figured out the chainsaw part. Like, that was within the realm of possibility. And thankfully, I was able to be like, hey, man, you tractors and 12-year-olds are a liability you don't know that you have right now. So we made it through. But I'll never forget that moment of being invited into something greater than myself, something something with people around me who seemed to know what they were doing. And I just was like, me? You got got the wrong guy. I don't don't know about this. And maybe, maybe you've had or have in your memory a similar situation to this where maybe it wasn't here warm up the chainsaw But the invitation to participation for you came in terms of here, just hold this baby as if you know what you're doing with that. Or grab this wrench. Can can you just, just cut those onions, you know, as you do? Or here's your new office. 
Here's your new responsibilities. These are your clients. And there's something inside of each other. I'm not super prepared for this thing. Who? Me? Maybe you got the wrong person. We don't always react this way. For some of us, maybe the reaction is, it's about darn time. You gave me an assignment. But for many of us, there's somewhat of an insecurity that maybe that we, you really want me to do this thing that seems really big and important? And that kind of lives inside of us and comes out even today, I'd imagine, for some of us. And this isn't entirely your fault or my fault. We live in a culture that has formed us not for dynamic participation in things, in our own lives, or in our faith journey. I mean, think about it. Even politics, right? We get to vote. It's a participatory democracy. And I don't want to take that for granted. It's incredible in the world. And yet, we vote for a candidate that is represented some ideas miles and miles away. And maybe, at best, I agree with 30% of what they work on. And that's if I voted for them. Less if I haven't. So my participation is distanced and mediated and over there. I mean, think too, we have social media, which is a place where we are curating profiles and presence, and it seems like we're participating. While some meaningful engagement does happen there, I think online, in a far more comprehensive way, we're coming to inhabit a world that is tailored to our online self through a process that is distant and beyond our reach and designed to serve the interests of whomever owns the algorithm. So says author Matthew Crawford. And I think it's correct that our technical gain of participation, even on our profiles, is at best data mining for big money and big tech. And our thing that we care so much about, even in that participation, we are still pawns mediated by big money and screens. And I think where a people are left wondering, as we are kind of lulled in to comfort and convenience and participation that is mediated and distant at best, we wonder, what does it mean for me to really engage in the invitation of my life, let alone the invitation of the living God? Our faith in the Western church often reinforces this too, right? I have been in these seasons and in these places where our models of the Western church is we check the box. We believe, yep, I believe that. I give those dollars. I pray before dinner. Use the blessed hashtag online. We're good. My participation boxes are checked. And friends, I think we are a people who have been formed to trade our agency and ideas and participation for convenience and comfort. And when occasionally asked for more, it may be that we're kind of like, what? Maybe you got the wrong person. I'm not ready for this or that. We don't often take ourselves seriously enough. Now, because of this, we may get all sorts of anxious about the idea of stepping into a dynamic relationship with the living God. And luckily, we're in good company this summer with one another 
and with the characters and the families and friends of the Old Testament scriptures. So we're kicking off something today, calling it the summer mixtape, the throwback of the Old Testament. Last summer, we dug into the Psalms. This summer, a little bit wider, the Old Testament. We're calling it the mixtape because we would love to hear what you want to hear about. So check the email that comes your way. And if you want to write in, be like, hey, can you talk about that story that's obscure and sounds difficult to preach on? Please send that in um, our way. Or if you have a legit curiosity, that's great too. We'd love to do that. So we're going to go through that this summer. And we are in good company, my friends, with the characters of this book. It is this, this first two-thirds of the scriptures are full of stories and prophets and poems in which God continues to invite and form a people for dynamic participation with God in the restoration of the world. And those people, too, are all sorts of anxious when they get invited into something big and important. And yet, that's the stories that are in front of us. So, we're going to take a little time this morning, we're going to look at this thing we call the Old Testament, and then we'll come back to chainsaws and Jesus. Does that sound okay? Great. Let's, let's dig in. So, the Old Testament. How old is it? That's, I'm not going to give a definitive answer, because that's tough, but it's over 3,000 years ago some of these stories began moving forward being told, being memorized, internalized. And we get the formation of what we see now as the Old Testament, these 39 books or scrolls. We get it kind of in place a few generations before Jesus comes on the scene. All right, so a little over 2,000 years ago, this thing is where it is now, this collection of stories, poems, wisdom, and literature. In the Protestant Bible, which would be what we would primarily use here. If you open it up, most uh, of the ways it's organized, you'll probably see four different headings. You'll see uh, the Pentateuch, right? Which is five, first five books of the Bible, the law. We get history, wisdom, and prophets. And this is not a bad way of doing it. It's quite practical, actually. Now, it's also often referred to as the Hebrew Bible. Because whose Bible was it first? Hebrews, right, yeah. Not, not Hebrews in the New Testament necessarily, but the Hebrew, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, those who are called and formed by God in this sense, um, and who speak Hebrew. And so uh, they would look at this or, uh, organization of the Old Testament as something we call Tanakh, which is short form for three words. There's three large headings how the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible is organized. Instead of four, we get now so we get three. Torah is the T in Tanakh. Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. So Torah, we'll start there. This is those first five books of the Bible. The law, the giving and forming of God's law, covenant, and people in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's something unique and formative that God is doing here around the covenant, which we'll talk more about around the giving of the law. This is how then you shall live as my called and invited people that happens uniquely in the story of Israel in these first five books. So this is, if you hear the word Torah, that's this. Now, the second grouping we get is the Nevi'im, or the prophets. 
There's former prophets and latter prophets. The former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, are their own thing. And the latter prophets, um, these voices of people who speak to the people of Israel, they are formed in two different sections, 3 and 12. These three books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the important major prophets of the Old Testament, mirroring the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there are 12 other prophets, as in the 12 tribes of Israel. What we get, you see on the screen here, these often shorter books that are calling Israel to faithfulness as God's people. So that's section number two. Section number three is the Ketuvim. Now this is a very diverse section of writings. There's kind of things all over the place. You get a bit of everything. You get Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Daniel, Esther. It's like if you were going to make a summer mixtape and you start off with maybe some Nickel Creek, then some Stevie Nicks, Stevie Wonder, then some Wonder Wall, and maybe The Wall by Pink Floyd, or Pink, American singer-songwriter born in 1979, and then over to what was number one in 1979, which is my Sharona, by the neck, that's kind of what you get in the Ketuvim, is this eclectic mix of things, but you can see, as you hear, they all hang together. There's an echo of the ties between these psalms, songs, spiritual songs, prophets, stories. They rhyme together. They're telling one story from multiple perspectives and for different reasons. So this Old Testament, the first two-thirds of our Bible, it has a lot of key themes. You'll be hearing about these this summer. There are more as well. A quick kind of uh, word study through our staff was like, hey, look, we're going to hear a lot about possessions, sacrifice, enemies, exodus, wilderness, barrenness, hospitality, grace, creation, covenant, mercy, the word, Sabbath, violence, land, temple, exile, allegiance, and hospitality. This is a rich and dynamic conversation that we get to enter this summer. Now what is philosophically the Old Testament? Something so diverse, it's tough to pin down, but let's start with a couple things. One, the Old Testament is a theological witness recognize that that sounds like abstract and out there. But theological, it's words about God. And it's a witness, like someone in a court drama. Here's what I've seen. It's, it's the collection of words about God from people who are trying to describe who it is that we are interacting with. Who is this God? As best we know, here is how this works for us. It's one people's testimony and witness to the living God. They're not writing it. Here's what I think this will be read 2,000 years from now. But saying, this is my experience, and I offer that. So it's a witness to the living God of what that relationship looks like. And there's all sorts of different like subgenres we're going to see throughout the Old Testament. There are kind of like a history, uh, history sections. 
There's songs and poetry. There's law and there's genealogies. There, there are things that kind of just put across, this is what I think it means to be in relationship with this loving, living God. And so those genres are important, but as a whole, it's a thing that gives witness to the world. Now, it's also other. It's, it's something else. Maybe the best way to think about this is the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Hebrew is read from right to left. We read from left to right. And if you ever try to do right to left, it throws you off a lot. Let alone they don't use the characters we do. We saw some of them earlier. It's the Hebrew alphabet. And that's about a good metaphor for what this thing is as a culture, as a time. It is other. It takes place in another time, another context. And that doesn't mean we get to make it say whatever we want. It does mean, though, that it's probably wise for us to maybe suspend our initial judgments and approach it with curiosity and wonder. I love this quote that Father Greg Boyle says about the poor, that our job is to seek a compassion or a curiosity that can stand in awe of what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment of how they carry it. And I think that dynamic works for us as we approach these Old Testament texts. It's not about why would you ever do that, but wonder what in their context makes that an option for them? What's happening in the ancient world? Ancient is another way this is, this is other. I mean, this is a land far, far away. There's no phone, no lights, no motor cars, not a single luxury in this place. It's an other time. So let's get curious together about what it could be. And curiosity means that we get to ask questions. I had the privilege to sit with, uh, in the student room, a few weeks ago, a group who was enacting scripture together, multi-generational group uh, spanning seven generations, seven decades, asking questions of the scripture together and then acting it out. What an amazing thing, but it happened because people asked their questions. And so bring your questions of this text this summer. And then in summary, I also think the Old Testament at its core, one of the main threads is an invitation to part partnership and participation with God. Not necessarily for God or under God, but with God, together, moving in the same direction. There's no place we see this more abruptly or more clearly than Genesis chapter 12 that Liz read for us. So let's take a look at this text together. Now, Genesis 12 is a turning point in the biblical narrative. Up until this point, we get Genesis chapter one through 11, which in many ways is set apart and distinctly different than what comes after it. Not only because it's where kind of at the end of 11, the world just spirals down into some chaos, but what happens in 1 through 11 is, is like a prologue to the story. No less important, I often am a prologue skipper in books, 
But don't do that with Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 is necessary. Who is this God? And in it, I mean, to think of it like, anybody read the Cimmerillion, right? This is the book before the Lord of the Rings, or like maybe a Mandalorian, anybody, right? This, the Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of this other thing that says, I'm going to set you up with the backstory and know what's going on. And then we get a, a break in the story at the end of 11, and then 12 kind of hits out of nowhere, like a bus at the end of a movie that takes out the bad guy. You don't hear it coming. Genesis 12 begins the plains of Haran, the Lord had said to Abram. Now, we know who the Lord is. We read Genesis 1 through 11. Abram does not. Abram hears this voice as a nomadic herder chieftain. Go from your country and your people and your father's household to a land I will show you. This place takes place on the plains of Haran. Here's a little picture of that. It's desert E, right? There's some green. This is a current photo, obviously, because they had no photographs. Um, it's a place where water matters. Place matters here. They had what they needed in Haran to expand as a family, to graze herds and cattle. And God is coming. A God comes to Abram and says, leave your household and your father. Meaning, Abram doesn't know this God. It appears as if he is worshiping the family idols and shrines that they have made over the centuries. And there's this God coming to him from elsewhere, which makes sense. Because in Genesis 12, we see out of what is chaos, this recreation of God speaking, which is what we see in Genesis 1 and in John 1. And that into the chaos, God speaks. And so this speaking God addresses a man who we know nothing of. We have no idea how he thought of himself, what his education was. He certainly didn't do anything to deserve this. God encounters him and then invites him into something dynamic. I would imagine that there was quite a bit of like, who, what, who, me? The, the idols in my dad's shrine don't speak. And this God speaks, knows my name, has a plan for me. Not only that, let's go to verse two. This God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went. That was fast. He goes as the Lord had told him and the Lord went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he went from Haran. Now, this is fast, abrupt, but an invitation. And what's strange about this is that there was always a subservient relationship with the gods of the ancient Near East. You would worship and sacrifice to them. They would offer you protection, good luck, maybe rain, sunshine for your crops and herds. But this is different. 
Not only does the voice speak into the chaos, knows Abram's name, invite him into something and says, I will make you a great nation. There is blessing before anything was earned. Nothing was done. The paradigm is totally flipped. That this speaking God is offering me something that I did not earn. This is abrupt and marvelous. And not only that, but this God is willing to tie God's fortune and reputation to Abram and his family, saying things like, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, gives Abram a ton of agency to represent God in the world. I mean, this is wild. Think about this. Maybe if you have uh, parented or raised kids, you send one of them to school, you get a call from the principal, I've heard this happens, and hey, your child did this. And so you gotta go in next time you're in the building and be like, hey, that's not how my family actually is. We don't say that or do that or do that. Because all of a sudden you have a representative of your family running wild out there. How incredibly generous and humble that the God of the universe says to a human being, would you represent me in the world? I will intertwine our fortunes, our being. How marvelous is it that God still does that? Says to humans, Go and represent me in the world, to the world, and all your flaws, all the ways you don't understand me, and I will bless those who bless you, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This is a turning point in all of human history, that the speaking God invites us into a dynamic relationship of participation. No longer is humanity on the sidelines. Abram is not a pawn in this story. Of course he has the option then of taking this with great pride and acting like he earned something or did something. But some of the characteristics we see of Abram moving forward is that he's generous, humble, and enables and gives hospitality to the world. This paradigm that we begin to see taking shape in Genesis 12 is, is helpful and leads the way of Israel through history and is something that we are invited to enter as well as God speaks to us, you and me, and says, I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to work through you and with you. I want to be with you. Not, here's what you can do for me. Here's what you should do. But I want to be with you and act in concert with you and your gifting and your calling in, in your place with your people, in your job, in your neighborhood, in your congregation, in your house church. I want to be with you. This is amazing news.
that you and I, my friends, are no longer far off. It's Jesus who, centuries later, says, I have not called you servants, but I call you friends. Not pawns, but participants. And so I wonder, as a church this summer, as we move through the Old Testament in a variety of ways and stories, can we be a people who are on the lookout for where and how God is inviting us to dynamic participation, to deeper partnership with the living God in the spaces and relationships that we inhabit? Can we be on the lookout for that? Because it's going to keep popping up that God wants to partner with us in the redemption of the world. Really important stuff. And so as a people, with this on our radar, it begs the question of us personally then too, what happens inside of you when you consider God inviting you into dynamic participation? What's the gut reaction? Is there a tendency to distance? Kind of like, you got, you got the wrong gal, you got the wrong guy. You don't know what I've done, where I've been. Does it, does it immediately go to lack of skills? We see that chapters later, we got Moses, but God, I can't, I can't speak. God makes a way. So what happens inside of you when you consider the God of the universe, the creating and speaking God, inviting you to deeper dynamic partnership in the world? Maybe this is the first time you've considered that thing. Maybe it's the first time in a long time. We have chapter after chapter, century after century of the Old Testament giving witness to how this is the God who continues to invite. No matter the straying path of God's people, he invites them back to form them, to cultivate them, to forgive them, and to send them as a blessing in partnership with God and the Holy Spirit. No more passively worshiping on the sidelines. And I would say this is not something that just happened. Again, this is a paradigm, a model that we carry forward through all of Scripture and now. We see it picked up on hundreds and hundreds of years later. You see Jesus come on the scene who talk about the humility of God. Not only has God limited God's self humbly by saying, people, be my partners, but then God takes on human flesh. All of expanse and power and eternity limited by a body that aches, tears ACLs, gets hungry, thirsty, tired. And not only that, but that God, this Jesus Messiah, says it's not enough for me to be alone. I need partners and friends. So when passing by the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter four, he sees men fishing 
Maybe those who have inherited this career, the, the family business. Or maybe it's those who don't have anything else they were qualified to do. Either way, however you, I mean they, feel, Jesus says, come and follow me into something dynamic and different. Or just a little bit later, Matthew, the tax collector, he is successful in his business. He is wealthy and yet doesn't feel like there's meaningful inclusion and good, meaningful work to do. And despite all the cultural no-nos, Jesus says, come with me and find what your heart is looking for. Or Mark chapter 10, you get the blind man. And you would think, wouldn't this God who can heal just, just heal and be done with you? Isn't this God efficient? But instead, Jesus asks the blind man, face to face, what do you want me to do for you? An unheard of sense of agency and participation by someone who has had none in his life. God saying, what do you want me to do for you? He asks for his sight. He is healed. And the last part of that chapter says, and he went along the way with Jesus. Jesus invites him in. And so I'm not sure how this hits for you, where the kind of pain points are. Maybe it's career, calling, stage, insecurities, past. And what does happening in you, as the God of the universe extends the invitation once again to come, participate with me in the restoration of your soul and in the restoration of the world. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good, that the invitation is for you. There are no shortage of places and times in our world that have told us this isn't for you. You can't do this. You haven't been invited. And again and again and again, the God of the universe comes to humanity, to you and I, and speaks our name and dignity. It says, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and participate in something beyond your wildest imagination. Bring your insecurities. Bring your hurts. Bring your hopes and expectations and let them be met in Jesus, who we are joined with by the power of the Spirit for the sake of the world. It is simple, not easy, and is profound. And so with our hopes in that God, trusting that the Spirit is encountering you and I this morning, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Would you pray with me? Lord, how good, and it is a joyful thing that at all times and in all places, 
from the wilderness to the desert, to the promised land, to the seashore, to our homes, to our neighborhoods, to our churches. We give thanks to you in all these places for you have called us there. And so God, we praise you. We join our voices with all of creation and all of heaven to sing praises to your name and specifically to you, Jesus, who has come in the name of the Lord. And so God, would you send your spirit, not just on this meal, but on our hearts, that you would invite us afresh, feed us anew, give us sustenance for the journey ahead. Would you renew your invitation to us through your Holy Spirit? And Lord, would you make this meal unto us the, the body of Christ, that in that communion you would heal us and bring us unity. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So it was Jesus who begins to break bread again with his disciples on the night before he was betrayed as the God who has broken bread with his friends and participants for centuries. And it's at the beginning of this meal that Jesus takes bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they'd eaten together, Jesus takes the cup and he pours it and he says, this is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so we do. We come and we take and we eat knowing that God is our provider. We have tables around the room where you can go and commune with one another. We have station up front where you can come and be served and receive the elements. We have prayer walls around the room where I invite you to pray. Maybe it is a simple word. Here's what happens inside me when I consider a deeper participation with God. And know that we will hold you in prayer in that. Maybe it's to pray with somebody in this moment. We have folks in the back who would love to pray with you with the name tags on. Maybe to name some of the things that God might be calling you to next or inviting you out of. We'd love to pray with you. And so let this time be a gift as we sing and raise our voices. God who has invited us into the grand and great story of participation with the living God. We rehearse that story and we say it in these three simple yet profound lines. That Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So come friends, take and eat and receive who you are, the body of Christ.